Good morning! Today is Sunday, the 23rd day of July, 2017. One early evening in 1952, several children saw something fly overhead and land nearby. Along with a couple of adults, they went to investigate and they saw something that scared them beyond belief. Was it an alien or maybe an owl? Some say it was a monster. Today we have the story of the Flatwoods Monster on the 131st episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. You know, I've never owned a lobster harmonica before. Sorry, I was just watching an episode of The Simpsons. So, how are all my friends out there in the land of the internet? Now, as any longtime listener knows, I like telling stories of monsters, UFOs, and ghosts that are thought to be real, and tell that in a way where I attempt to give a more down-to-earth explanation. Some say I'm a skeptic who likes debunking mysteries. I don't think so. I say I'm just offering another account that doesn't require, well, magical thinking. On my list of stories to tell was the Flatwoods Monster. And once I decided that it would be today's story, I began to do what I always do. First, I read the Wikipedia page. In this case, Wiki didn't have very much. So the next thing I usually do is I go to YouTube and look for a good documentary on the subject. Maybe something from the History or Science Channel or the BBC, something like that. But for today's story, it took sort of a strange turn. Yes, I found a few videos, but they were all produced by, well, how do you put it, hardcore believers. I mean real hardcore believers. These folks have never seen an unexplained light in the sky that they didn't believe was an alien visitor that's being covered up by the government. All I can say is you have to watch or listen to one of these programs to really understand what I'm talking about. I mean, you'll be thinking what I was thinking. These people really do exist. You know, people like the lone gunman from the X-Files. You know, these people that, well... Anything that supports a conspiracy is automatically believed, and anything that doesn't is, well, part of the cover-up. I mean, if they find government records that seem to indicate something strange going on, they say, ha-ha! But if they don't find any government records, then it's, well, that proves the government's covering it up. I listen to some of these people, and all I can say is, wow, I mean, wow! Either they're completely delusional... Or I'm living in some sort of fantasy land. I'm a sheep, blind to the truth. Is it true that nothing happens by accident? Nothing is as it seems and everything is connected? Or am I right in thinking that, well, crap happens? Anyway, today in Chicago, we've had rain and rain and rain and more rain. People all over have stacks of stuff outside their house that they're throwing away because of flooding. But here in my house, it's dry and my coffee is steaming. So how about a tale of an alien 
or a monster, or an alien that was called a monster, or maybe an owl. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. The remote forests of central West Virginia. The people here live in relative isolation. Eyewitnesses report a 10 to 12 foot tall, terrifying creature. Reptilian in appearance. It is said to have long, thin arms, two fingers, and scaly skin. The monster appears to hover over its victims in some sort of craft or suit that emits a piercing noise and dangerous toxic gases. Today's tale of mystery is about something commonly referred to as the Flatwoods Monster, which is also known as the Braxton County Monster, or the Phantom of Flatwoods, or the Green Monster. And if I understand the story correctly, it was some sort of alien. So if all this is true, do you think an alien who can control a flying saucer and travel through space, do you think they mind being called a monster? Doesn't seem quite fair. Now, Gary Barker was an American writer best known for his books about UFOs and other paranormal phenomena. He is the man that introduced the world to the idea of the men in black in his 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. I bring him up because he was one of the first to investigate the Flatwoods monster. He was there shortly after it happened. While there has been others that have investigated and wrote about this event, I don't take what they say all that seriously, and I'll explain that later. The thing is, much of what I describe about the events, not all of it, but most, comes from Gary's story published in Fate magazine in January of 1953, only four months after the event. It was titled The Monster and the Saucer, and I got it from the book True UFO Accounts from the Vaults of Fate magazine by David Godwin. The reason I go back to Gary is that, as I researched the story, I began to wonder how much really happened and how much has been added or exaggerated later to make the event more mysterious than it actually was. I mean, if you type Flatwoods Monster into Google... Most of the sites you get are from places like ufocasebook.com or cryptomondo.com, theparanormalguide.com, and many more. All these sites seem to have a bias towards a belief in these types of things. You know, UFOs and ghosts and all that. And I may be wrong about this, but I think a lot of these sites tend to favor the more mysterious sides of the issue. And perhaps if one site exaggerates a little bit and another site picks up their story and they exaggerate it a little bit more and so on and so on, and this has been going on for 60 years, you begin to wonder how much is really the truth. But Gary wrote about this right after it happened. So let's get to it. It happened in the early evening in the little village of Flatwoods in the hills of West Virginia. Flatwoods at the time had a population of less than 300 people. On November 12, 1952, a group of youngsters, 13-year-old Edward May, his brother, 12-year-old Fred, and their friend, 10-year-old Tommy Heyer, were playing football at a school playground. 
At around 7.15 p.m., all three boys saw something streak across the sky. The children later described it to Gary Barker as looking like a silver dollar rushing through the sky. It was spouting exhaust which looked like red balls of fire. It came southwest across the sky, directly over the hilltop, paused, seemed to hover, then descended out of view on the other side. It appeared to have landed or crashed in the hilltops of the nearby Bailey Fisher Farm. They quickly ran to Edward and Fred's mother, Kathleen May, a local beautician, to explain what they had seen. At first, she said it was probably just their imaginations. When she went outside, she could see a strange red glow coming from up on the hill. She immediately thought there might be a plane crash and people might need help. So the four of them, with 14-year-old Neil Nunley, 10-year-old Ronnie Shaver, and 17-year-old West Virginia National Guardsman Eugene Lemon and Eugene's dog, went to investigate. Now, as Baker points out, many accounts from the witnesses do not exactly agree with each other, but one must remember that they were walking to the site in the dark by flashlight. There were two adults surrounded by a group of kids that were probably frightened beyond belief. I mean, if you've ever gone walking into the darkness in the country before, you know how dark it can be. I mean, really dark. I've walked through the woods in the country before with only a flashlight, and it can be pretty scary. Every little sound causing your head to whip around. Now imagine climbing up the hill in the dark after what you believed might have been some sort of flying saucer that had crashed or landed. Now if you go on the internet and read accounts of the story, you'll find the story of Lemon's dog, but according to Baker, that comes later. Our explorers were climbing up a hill when a strange fog or mist suddenly rolled in and it seemed to have a strange odor. Baker described it as pungent and irritating. And as they got closer, the mist got thicker, and they began seeing a pulsating red light going from dim to bright. They passed through a gate of a fence and went over a hilltop where they saw a globular object to their right, about 50 feet away. Neil Nelly, the 14-year-old boy who was walking in front with Eugene Lemon, said, "'It was just a big ball of fire.'" and said that he would estimate its size as being as big as a house. The object seemed to grow dimmer and brighter in regular intervals. Someone in the group noticed something odd to the left about 15 feet away. When they looked over, it looked like two glowing green spots, and at first they thought it was an animal's eyes. When Lemon turned his flashlight towards it, they saw something near a tree under a huge branch. It was a huge man-like creature towering over them. Its face was round and blood red, with a hood around it in the shape of a spade from a deck of cards. It seemed to be around ten feet tall, and from its eyes were two greenish-orange beams that were projected over their heads. Some later said that the body was colorless. Others said it was green. Now, like I said, this account was written right after it actually happened. This will be important later, I think. This is what Barker wrote in his story. Mrs. May said she saw clothing-like folds around the figure. Descriptions from the waist down are vague. Most of the seven said this part of the figure was not under view. Not all agree that the monster had arms. 
Mrs. May described it with terrible claws. Some say they didn't see anything. Not all agreed on the height of the figure, but according to their descriptions, it couldn't have been more than ten feet tall. By this time, the odor, which they described as sickening and irritating to their nostrils, was getting worse. Some said it was like burning metal or sulfur. Baker wrote, Under questioning, none of the seven could remember anything in their experiences resembling the odor. The sound they heard that night was something between a hiss and a high-pitched squeal with a thumping or throbbing noise. The group could not say how long they observed the creature before they ran. Nunley said it was a very short time. We just got a good look at it and left. Apparently, the figure at some point began moving towards them, and Nunley, when asked if he could move like it did, said, I couldn't move as it did. It just moved. It didn't walk. It just moved evenly. It didn't even jump. Lemon, the 17-year-old West Virginia National Guardsman, screamed and dropped the flashlight. The pulsating globe was so bright that the figure became visible. Kathleen May and Lemon said they didn't even notice the globe because they were too fixated on the floating figure, but Nunley said he got a good look at it. It was about this time in Baker's story that we first hear about Lemon's dog. He said it howled and ran away and was later found in the house with its tail between its legs. Some of the more modern versions of this story say that this happened before they reached the creature, that the dog ran ahead of them, then came back whimpering with its tail between its legs, but not according to this. And that's about all there is to the original story. They went back to May's house, telephoned the nearby town of Sutton to talk to local officials. Sheriff Carr and his deputies rushed to the scene a short time later, and they said when they investigated, they saw heard, and smelled nothing. A. Lee Stewart Jr. of the Braxton Democrat, a local newspaper, who got there soon after the sheriff, said that he saw some of Kathleen May's group receiving first aid and that some of the group was too terrified to talk coherently. May finally went with him to the hilltop. There were no signs that anything had happened. But he said if you got close to the ground, you could smell a strange odor that was as the others said, sickening and irritating. Now keep in mind, this was the same night that the events happened. If something had crashed on the hilltop, whatever was responsible must have cleaned it up quickly and fixed any damage to the area. The next day, skid marks were found in the tall grass, but other than some small stones that appeared to have been tossed aside, the earth was not disturbed. Some say that oil was found in the area, but Gray Barker, who visited the site soon after, said he saw no traces of oil, but of course, that was a week later. His only other witness was a man who said that he saw the spaceship take off from the hilltop. Barker said the man agreed to meet him out there and show him exactly where it happened, but the man never showed up. He also said that many people in the area saw illuminated objects in the sky that night around the same time. Now, Gray Barker has a definite belief in things like UFOs and, and such, and said in his article, It is my belief the account fits perfectly with other flying saucers of similar craft. So what happened that night? Did Kathleen May and the others really meet a visitor from another world? 
to this day, those involved, the ones that will talk about it, still believe that they did. Do I think they're lying? No, not at all. I believe they believe something extraterrestrial happened that night. Joe Nickel of the Skeptical Inquirer, who is well known as one who attempts to find logical explanations for such events, in what some refer to as debunking, did his own investigation. On June 1st in the year 2000, Nickel drove to Flatwoods to look at the site for himself. And the first thing he noticed was a sign that said, Welcome to Flatwoods, home of the Green Monster. Now I'm going to get to some other modern day researchers in a minute, but here's a little bit of the information Nickel uncovered that is never mentioned by any of these storytellers. He met 95-year-old Johnny Lockhart, who told him that virtually everyone who had seen the alleged flying saucer in the sky in 1952 recognized it for what it was, a meteor. In fact, this meteor was seen streaking across the sky in various states. He wrote, In fact, according to a former local newspaper editor, there is no doubt that a meteor of considerable proportions flashed across the heavens that Friday night, since it was visible to at least three states, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. An explanation for the pulsating light could have been the light from a nearby plane beacon which was visible from the hilltop. Remember, these people were scared, it was dark and foggy, and all they had was one flashlight. What about the skid marks and possible oil on the ground? Well, that seemed to have come from Johnny Leichhardt's son, Max, who drove up there in his 1942 Chevrolet pickup truck that very evening of the event, and it was Max and his old truck that was the cause. Max also said he saw nothing, no monster and no landing traces in the meadow grass. Speaking of the grass, Ivan Sanderson, a skeptic, also noticed the strange smell in the grass, but stated that it was almost surely derived from a kind of grass that abounds in the area. He added, We found this grass growing all over the country, and it always smelt the same, though not perhaps as strong. Personally, I would guess that the heavy fog caused the smell to be a little stronger that night, but who knows? Air Force investigators concluded that the boy's illness was a physical effect brought on by their fright. But what about the monster? The best guess, it was an owl in the tree. In Major Donald E. Keyhole's 1953 book, Flying Saucers from Outer Space, he wrote, They concluded that the monster was probably a large owl perched on a limb, with the underbrush beneath it having given the impression of a giant figure, and the excited witnesses having imagined the rest. Now, I'm not going to go through all Joe Nichols' article point by point, but I'll have a link to it in today's show notes. The article goes on to a lot more detail of what might have happened that night. And that wraps up this amazing story of what people call the most significant event in ufology. Yet there is one more aspect of this tale I would like to talk about, and that's how this simple event in which a handful of people, two adults and five kids, saw something that they thought was an alien monster one night, and how it had, by 2005, become a huge, mysterious tale of an alien invasion with unearthly visitors fighting the United States Air Force, with saucers crashing, and, of course, the inevitable cover-up. 
Modern-day researchers such as Frank Fragino and Barry Conrad have spent years researching what had happened, and they have come up with some amazing details that were not available 60 years ago. I found a YouTube video of an audio podcast called Dreamland by Whitney Schreiber, who is, as far as I can tell, a huge believer in the presence of E.T. visitors on the Earth. According to Wikipedia, Schreiber asserts that he was abducted from his cabin in upstate New York on the evening of December 26, 1985, by non-human beings, but that's another story for another day. Anyway, in 1905, he interviewed Frank Fraschino, who had been investigating the Flatwoods monster at that time for at least 14 years. He wrote a book called The Braxton County Monster, The Cover-Up of the Flatwoods Monster Revealed. Frank had been talking to all those that were involved in the encounter, those that are still alive and willing to talk, and he has his own theory. Though the way Frank tells it, this is not so much a theory, it's what actually happened, and it's scary. Apparently, this was the end of some huge alien invasion that had been going on for a while. The United States Air Force was in a battle with these alien saucers. The ship that landed in Flatwoods was part of a rescue mission after one of the alien ships had been shot down. You see, Frank spent years looking over the whole United States for other UFO sightings. And he said, And I discovered that there was a UFO flap going on that night, and thousands and thousands of Americans actually saw these particular UFOs um, flying across the country over the period of 18 and a half hours. In fact, the interviewer says at this point, Good Lord, and you're the first person to put together these facts that there was a virtual invasion going on that night. Frank tells the story of damaged alien spacecrafts flying across the country, dropping debris as they burned, crashing to the ground. In his version, the creature was not 10 feet tall, as originally reported, but 12 feet tall. The bigger the better, right? The smell that the witnesses found so irritating, he says, was part of the spaceship's exhaust system that made the machine hover. The monster was either a floating machine or a biological creature in a metal suit. Even though in the original story, Barker wrote that Kathleen May saw clothing-like folds around the figure. But Frank says that was wrong. It's really odd that he knows so much detail about the creature when the witnesses only saw it for a few moments before running. Like I said, it was dark, foggy, and they were scared, with only a flashlight which was dropped. Of course, an explanation was this was all quickly cleaned up by the government. The government denies a cover-up, as one would expect, but Frank and Barry know the truth. In Barry's version of the story, he tells about how oil was spraying out of the creature and Kathleen May was covered with oil when she was found. Of course, that's not mentioned in Gray Barker's version of the story that he wrote four months after the event, and you would think that would have been a pretty important part to tell, but still. So these guys went around interviewing people who were there, but you have to remember, this was 40, 50, or 60 years after the event. Even in 2005, Kathleen May, who, let's guess that she was 25 at the time, remember, she had a 13-year-old son, so she was probably older than that, But if she was 25 at the time, she would have been 78, and her 13-year-old son would have been 66. They would have had decades of thinking about what had happened. 
going over and over it in their minds. And I would guess, and I might be wrong, that there may be a few witnesses who, well, maybe weren't real witnesses at the time, but just want to be part of the story. Again, I'm not saying these people are lying. I think they believe every word of what they're saying. It's just that the brain is, is such a horrible record keeper. I'll have a link to the two YouTube videos, one of an audio podcast of Frank and the other a live talk that Barry did. You can watch them and judge them for yourself. They are either very funny or very scary, depending how you look at it. You know, if the event of 1952 were really some sort of alien invasion, as Frank Vicino asserts, then I think we can conclude that the alien invaders are not very bright. I mean, coming all this way from another world to start an invasion, then stop after a few hours having accomplished nothing? I guess the United States Air Force was just way too powerful for these creatures that had the ability to travel across the deep, dark, cold vacuum of space. Some would think that the town of Flatwoods would want to put this whole incident behind them. But like I said, they have a sign when you enter the town that says, Home of the Green Monster. And up until 2006, they held an annual event to celebrate the Green Monster. A three-day event that included a weekend of live music, a Green Monster Museum, and trips to the original landing site. Nickel believes the original sighting was exaggerated, a product of its time. You, you will search, I think, in vain for a case quite like Flatwoods prior to 1952. If we look at this in the Cold War context, there was a kind of general mass hysteria. The, the general climate was such that uh, people were looking to the skies. Once you get a report, it sparks other reports. This is what is well known as contagion. The Flatwoods case got a lot of attention. It got newspaper media attention, and it, it set up almost a new genre of of a type of monster. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. All right, just a few things to wrap this up before I go. First, I do realize the irony that as I talk about how recent interviews with witnesses might be unreliable because of the amount of time that has passed, that I also quote Joe Nickel who was talking to a man that was 95 years old about the same incidents that happened more than 40 years earlier. But the fact is there were many reports, even at that time, about a meteor passing over those states. But like I always say, don't trust me or anybody else when hearing about controversial stories. Research them on your own and make your own conclusions. Keep in mind that if during your research you are attempting to prove what you want or already believed to be correct, you will do just that. It's called a confirmation bias. You accept the things that support your ideas and disregard all the information that doesn't. It's exactly why people are so pig-headed when it comes to politics. I love science because the idea of science is trying to prove yourself wrong. And only if you can't prove yourself wrong, then you might consider the possibility that you might be right. Then we get into the whole peer review thing, but that's a whole nother story for another day. 
Now to change the subject, I've noticed that iTunes only carries my last 100 episodes. I believe this is a limitation of iTunes, perhaps? So if you want to hear my really old shows, which a lot of them are sort of crappy, but they're there, you can go over to PsyCon's website, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, or to the Coffee with Jeff website, that's coffeewithjeff.com. And now, the ending credits. You know, the Psycons Patreon page could use your support. Financially, we're just barely treading water. If you want to help out, just go over to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. Every dollar helps. And, of course, a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other classic shows? In the latest edition of Moving On, Brecky, Linnea, and Toreg discuss the classic film, DuckTales the Movie, Treasure of the Lost Lamp. You can find this and other amazing shows over at the PsyCon Network. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. Come on, send me an email, say hi, complain, whatever. I'll answer your email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. Your story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a, a review or a few stars. Those reviews really help. And remember, Links to the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to everybody who listens to this show, thank you so much. And a special shout-out to those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart, and I mean that. Thanks a lot. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and 
to have some coffee with you. Coffee with just coffee on coffee with just coffee with just.